Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we're going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 film scores in American cinema history. We're up to number 23 on the countdown. Which means that on this episode, we're going to be talking about Ennio Morricone's score to the ambitious 1986 period drama, The Mission. The Mission was produced by Fernando Guia and David Putnam. It was written by Robert Bolt and directed by Roland Joffe. Andy, what's The Mission all about? Well, The Mission is basically a very well-intentioned prestige drama, handsomely photographed, of an unusual historical subject. It's 1750 in South America, and we are following Jesuit missionaries who are working with the local Guarani people. It stars Jeremy Irons as one of those missionaries. It also stars Robert De Niro as a slave trader and a mercenary who winds up killing his own brother in a duel in a fit of anger, then repents and joins the mission, but remains a man of action, whereas Jeremy Irons is very much a man of peace. Right, and what those two philosophies are up against is that the political forces of Spain and Portugal and the Roman Catholic Church as a result of a jurisdictional dispute, end up deciding that these missions need to be eliminated and ultimately they are destroyed by these outside forces. Good enough? Good enough. So when you hear the term jurisdictional dispute right, and 1750 and South American mission, you might think that would be a complicated subject to dramatize. How do you think they did, John? I don't think that it was done, well, coherently, uh, interestingly. The screenplay was written by Robert Bolt, who is famous for having written the screenplays to Dr. Zhivago and uh, Lawrence of Arabia and epics of the previous generation. So that's a pretty good pedigree and someone you think might be able to take this on, but it doesn't really solve its own problems. It kind of lays it out there for you to try to meet it. Yeah, that's right. I don't think it knows what point it wants to make about all of these various factions and people besides that. I don't even, I don't, what's even at the end of that sentence? Besides what? Well, the end of the movie is that both of the missionaries we've been following, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro, die more or less tragically in the massacre of everyone involved in this mission, the native people and all the missionaries. And this is obviously something that the movie wants us to feel is sad. So that's certainly clear in its outlook. Is it? I don't think it does make clear that we're supposed to be sad about it. I mean, you know, just the description of those things happening to people is a sad ending. But I felt like the editing of that sequence seemed to almost be going out of its way to not emphasize anything and to not focus our attention in meaning and in understanding on anything that was happening. Yeah, I would say that the ending is the most acute point for this problem, but the problem kind of exists throughout the movie, that what it wants to bring to the fore is not clear, certainly not clear in the screenplay or the directing, and that this actually leaves a big opening for the music to determine what the viewer thinks is important. That's right. There's a lot of being asleep at the switch here from the director. I feel safe in saying that. 
And yeah, that basically lets Morricone choose what he wants to do. And I think it's important also to say at the outset here that Ennio Morricone is undeniably one of the great film composers, and the music that he's capable of writing and does write for this movie is glorious music. This movie is also a stark example of the fact that the composer cannot score a film in a vacuum. And the composer must be part of a decision-making and filmmaking process that knows what it is about. And I think we see here that, you know, as nice as the pull quotes are from the score, watching it, it's not part of a complete thought. Well, I will differ with that slightly insofar as on my first viewing of the movie, because I returned to sort of pick my way through it afterward and and think about the music more consciously. But on my first natural viewing of the movie, for the first 50 minutes, there's sort of two halves of the story, the first of which is pretty much dedicated to the drama of Robert De Niro's character undergoing a transformation and, you know... Uh, sin and redemption. Are you about to say that you were into it for the first half and then got taken out of it? Because I would agree with that completely. Uh, yeah, I was specifically going to say, and am going to say, that uh, I felt... Are you saying it right now? It's the next thing you're going to hear me say. Okay. Just kidding. It's the next thing you're going to hear me say now. I felt that the music in the Is first half... Probably. I don't know. Let's see. There's a good bit. There's a good bit. Let's leave this in. There's a good bit. <laughs> We'll see about that, too. Um, I felt like in the first half, the music was leading in my experience of the picture. I felt that the music was carrying the movie on its back, but that it had made an arrangement where that might kind of work, that this was sort of an operatic, allegorical tapestry that we were watching on screen that didn't have quite cohesive messages or characters but it had this musical impact as a complete work it had it was a kind of a musical work and i was able to experience it sort of on that that operatic level i'll probably be returning to that word yeah well i like that word a lot i like that word operatic um and I do have to, I do have to backpedal a little on what I said, the, the sort of sweeping generalization I made about it not being a complete thought. You're absolutely right that I was mostly thinking about the second half of the movie, you know, the denouement of all of the things that we thought we had been following all this time. And, and I like the use of the word operatic because, yes, there were very compelling moments in the first half that were absolutely dragged across the screen by the music. The fact is that when I went back to go through it, you know, a little more attentively, I didn't find the early scenes nearly as effective because I now understood what the whole movie was playing at ineffectually, what the whole movie was going to fail to do, and understood that these earlier scenes were not really kind of a grand poem. They were just kind of loose. Uh, The first several scenes of the movie take place in and around a big waterfall. It's a famous one, right? It's called... Iguazu Falls. Thank you very much for having that at the tip of your tongue. I prepared it because I thought, I don't want the people who know how to pronounce Iguazu Falls to not like our show. (laughs) They're a powerful lobby. Uh, So, yes, uh, a bunch of things happen in and around Iguazu Falls. Did I get that right? 
<laughs> the first part is a very stunning visual in which the previous outgoing, as it were, missionary is crucified on some logs and sent alive over the falls to his demise. Uh, very visually arresting. And then the next thing that we see over the main titles is Jeremy Irons basically coming to replace that missionary. After the prologue, the first music that we hear when we see Jeremy Irons arriving at the falls and then climbing it is this big operatic theme. big that big entrance there where it, the uh, orchestration widened and the timbrel emphasized the downbeat where you know when we landed on a big important chord and the harmony changed and additional material added to the um, orchestrational texture that big moment it lands on what I think it's just Jeremy Irons. Yeah, not much. The answer is not much. The answer is that it just kind of sits in the middle of a shot when he's like standing on some rocks in the river. And he's standing on the rocks. He's standing on the rocks. And then boom. He's still standing on the rocks. I definitely had the experience at that moment of thinking like, oh, this is that famous bit from the mission. I thought it would be later in the movie and more significant because I've definitely heard it in commercials and things. Right. You thought it would line up with a thing that was telling you was important. Yeah, I I was kind of looking forward to finding out what it was because I've heard it a bunch of times before and it turned out to be um, like the second scene in the movie when Jeremy Irons is near some rocks. Yeah, and then it continues to be near the rocks. I think they are, uh, to just give it its due, which is not very much, they are a grave marker for the martyred priest that we saw in the prologue. Fair enough, but I'm saying that the moment that is obviously marked by that arrival in the score is... Is not a moment. Is no moment at all. A helicopter shot of the falls would be great. They didn't have one. Well, they had wide shots of the falls. I don't know if they were from a helicopter or not, but they had, you know panoramic vistas of the falls uh and it did not cut to them on that downbeat which it might have and this immediately got my antenna up for why was there that disconnect just now between the music and the picture do you have a theory for why my theory for why is that roland joffe didn't really bother himself to figure out what to do with the music I am so tempted to lay this at his feet rather than any of those because uh because I met him once Oh, did you? Yeah, that's right. You saved that. Where did you meet Roland Joffe, John? Oh, no, I met Ennio Morricone. Oh. (laughs) Because you met Ennio once and respect him. That's right. I met Ennio once and I respect him. I'm a fan of some of his other scores, and I'm a fan of the music that he wrote for this picture, but I think that it is poorly deployed. And so that's where I'm uh, casting my blame. 
my theory for why there was less than ideal sync in that moment and in others was that some of this music had been written maybe to a duration and a theme, but not necessarily to the particular moment that it had been ultimately placed on. Yeah, that's very plausible. And in fact, I felt like some scenes surely had not been the original intended recipients of the music that they ultimately ended up with. That has to be the case. And I think that part of the reputation of this score has to do with its quality on the soundtrack, independent of the movie, which has not nearly, uh, its reputation hasn't survived nearly as well as the scores on its own. And I think that might be in part because it was composed that way as music to accompany various kinds of scenes in a movie on these themes, but not specifically to accompany moment by moment the scenes that we ended up watching in the finished film. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely worth surmising that he wrote standalone music because of who knows what situation in the post-production of this film, which obviously needed help in its post-production. And I think that whatever problems are manifest in the film's editing and assembly had a deleterious effect on the deployment of Ennio Morricone's music in such a way that it did not amount to a unified score the way it should have. You know, the movie is about these themes of Christian grace itself. As opposed to or related to the Christian church. And then the, the noble natives... Uh, versus the nobility of these Christianized natives. Then there's also nature depicted as nature. And so you're trying to sort out these philosophical elements, and Morricone has provided music that more or less corresponds to each of these elements. He just hasn't provided a scheme by which that music can help you in any way to, to reach an understanding of it. Yeah, and at the and beginning, I didn't know that that was going to happen, so I was actually moved by this glorious swelling of music that corresponded to the falls, and I was left thinking, you know, is am I feeling something bigger than, than this very sincere missionary is feeling? Am I seeing beyond Christianity, or is this a Christian swelling of emotion? I thought that was interesting, and I thought that this was a stimulating movie for going there. And on second watch, I realized the movie wasn't going anywhere. It was just a collection of stuff. Yeah, collection of stuff. I, you know, we read an interview uh, where Marconi enumerated three different themes. In his quote, he used the word themes, but I think he was referring to styles of music. Sure, styles or, or uh, you know, musical palettes. He lists them and he said that, you know, they represented the different elements that you were just referring to and that you could play any of the three of them together on top of each other in different permutations. And that winds up being a really important technique in this score, the juxtaposition of disparate and sometimes competing musical ideas on top of each other, as though to say... Yeah, there's uh, there's different stuff happening in this movie. <laughs> Here it is at the same time. 
a significant scene at the beginning of the movie, right after Jeremy Irons has climbed the falls. Where he's going is to make peace with the natives and uh, endear himself to them. And he does this with the magic of European classical music, which he brings in an oboe. Uh, in the form, he brings in the form of an oboe that he... <laughs> he brings all of it rolled up inside of his oboe. He, he brings an oboe and he sits down in the middle of the South American jungle and starts playing... classical western music on this oboe and uh, you hear this theme which apparently Morricone wrote more or less to match the random fake playing that Jeremy Irons did ha huh. <laughs> really so he says all right, well, that is interesting for a few reasons. One is that I kind of noted that Jeremy Irons wasn't doing that great a job of matching his fingers to the notes, although that, you know, who knows how that shook out in editing. Having read that, I went back to look to see, did he did he really do that? And I think that the main thing it refers to is that in the first shot where Jeremy Irons begins tentatively to play, he makes shapes that match the first four notes of this turn that he uses at the beginning of right. the oboe theme. When he brings back the theme in full, he makes that turn go much faster. But yes, Morricone claims that the inspiration for the contour of that line came from taking down what he saw the fingers doing on screen. I'm glad you used the word contour because uh, the contour of this melody has a pretty short wavelength, right? It's what I think we used to call in counterpoint class noodley. Uh, which is to say that it is going up and down in scale-wise steps around the same notes, and it is, uh, you know, sort of repeating the same area of the scale, but noodling around it. Well, I don't mean this to be a criticism, but I think it is noteworthy about this theme how noodly it is that <laughs> it, there's, it starts with a turn, doodly-loo, and then it goes, turns again. It doesn't just arrive at a note, it noodles around that note, which is, I think, unusual among the great themes of film music, wouldn't you say? It does have some leaps in it. It has some distinctive yes, it, it does have some. Right, absolutely. And then it reaches up and then reaches up again. those are the emotional moments in the theme. I think that perhaps what you are responding to, or at least what I responded to as strangely limited about that theme, is what it does harmonically, because it goes back to the tonic once, and then twice, and then the third time. Every time I hear it, I think, why isn't it doing more now? But it's because he didn't want to write a whole complicated piece. He wanted to write something that sounded complete in a 10-second phrase. I'm pretty sure that what he wanted this to sound like is Bach. It sounds like any number of Bach sort of aria pieces.
At that point, Bach has come back to the tonic, but listen to what he does next. Yeah, he moves through a whole bunch of other chords. He goes to a lot of different places. He has a long-term plan in mind, and Marconi's plan is to reach an end reliably within a short span. I don't want to get too wonky here, but in the same class, we would have looked at a line like that, and I think it functionally is much less noodly. I think you can really hear that moving around the contour of the scale, moving from note to note, from point to point in the melody, has a functional result or even or a purpose in stepping from one place to another. That is not there in the in the Morricone. Yeah, in the theme known as Gabriel's Oboe, which I had seen for many years and known was the name of a famous movie theme, uh, and always thought was a pretty bad name for a famous <laughs> movie theme. So I said he's trying to evoke Bach. I certainly think that's the kind of thing it calls to mind. We think, oh, it's 1750 and this is this European music. I don't think, however, that his intention is just to write some Bach. I do think he was going for something different, and yes. I dare say stylistically something I was reminded of in that material and also in the Falls theme that we heard earlier is uh, Italian opera. I think of it as the Puccini thing, but it's in other Italian opera too, where a couple of notes, some little phrase is played over a particular bass note for maximum poignancy and that this is the entire intent of the thing. Not to go on a journey, but just to have some moment of, you know, I'm thinking of the famous Pagliacci moment that everyone knows. Insert Pavarotti here. Please insert Pavarotti there. (laughs) Just the poignancy of those notes is the juice. That's what people are there for. Or uh, or maybe this one is better because it's actually by Puccini. Who knows what the rest of the theme is? It doesn't matter. <laughs> what you're interested in is the is the poignant feeling in that one moment, and to me, that's this classically Italian attitude to what you can get out of music and that's what this theme does it has a bunch of moments of strong poignancy in the way that the melody and the bass tense against each other and it doesn't really try to do much else yeah i really like that observation that goes back to obviously you said operatic earlier And this is a really great application of that because it is finding those poignant moments. And what are those moments? Those are, as you say, scalar steps, you know, that uh, unfold on top of a chord. And that's essentially what's going on in that, uh, that waterfall music, this repeated four notes. And the bass moves to different places so that 
With some basses, one of those four notes will be a chord tone and the one next to it isn't, and then with a different bass, different note is a chord tone. And yes, you're right, the chords change, and that changes the meaning of these little three or four note figures. And the Gabriel's oboe theme, that's a very good way of thinking about it, is a menagerie of these little three or four note turns and phrases that sort of sit there on top of their background. And any five seconds of it contains a little bit of this poignant feeling. It has been prepared to do that rather than create a sentence that goes to some Thank you for articulating why I still think it's good, even though it sounded like I was criticizing its homework. I think it's probably worth mentioning the fate of this theme that it was turned into a song by the singer Sarah Brightman. Oh, boy. You didn't even know that, did you? I didn't even, and I'm not sure I still do. This song is done in the, what the, I guess they call the classical crossover market. It's done on these like TV uh, talent shows where, where little girls come on and sing opera. It's in the same pocket where the three tenors and right. people singing Les Miserables. You're Andrea Bocelli. Yeah. You know, the kind of stuff that they play for the Fountain Show at the Bellagio. Exactly. I don't remember hearing this at the Fountain Show at the Bellagio, but you I You very well may have, though. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's because it feeds that particular kind of hunger for, you know, industrial strength, poignancy, <laughs> rather than discourse, musical discourse of any particular kind. Okay, so I want to highlight a place in the score where I think he does use this technique of small scalar stepping, uh, noodly, creepy, crawly music, and I think it is very, very effective. Maybe my favorite place in the score, uh, and that is the whole sequence when Robert De Niro is performing his penance in order to join the mission, in order to repent for his crime of murder and become a man of the cloth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to insert here that the 10 minutes devoted to that subject matter are like by far the best part of this movie. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone thinking otherwise. That is when it seems like a movie that is about something right. and is moving. And uh, it just stands head and shoulders above the rest of it. Absolutely, it does. And also during that time is when I most clearly and directly was aware of the music doing the work to make that the case, to tell us why this was interesting or important. So Robert De Niro is forced to carry behind him a enormous net full of heavy armor and other implements of war, and they're all bound up in this netting, and it's like a big ball of heavy stuff that is lashed to him, and he must drag behind him up the waterfall, up the river, and it keeps slipping down and he constantly goes back and picks it up, eventually carries this thing all the way up the river to the top of the waterfall, and jump in here, what happens at the top? Um, the Guarani come out, they, they're all converts at this point, and they're on good terms with Jeremy Irons. They come out to greet him, and then the stranger arrives, who's Robert De Niro lugging this thing, and he looks sort of monstrous and covered with mud, and... One of them runs out to him, suspiciously, I guess, and holds a knife to his throat. And there's a moment of tension. We don't know what's going to happen. Jeremy Irons is sort of... He he gives some kind of nod, and the kid with the knife cuts the burden boulder sack thing off of Robert De Niro's back, and it falls off the cliff into the water below. And Robert De Niro, who, who in the previous scene said, 
that there's no penance hard enough for him. He internally feels that somehow he has fulfilled his penance and he experiences a catharsis and, and begins to weep. And it is a genuinely cathartic moment. And he begins to weep and then he begins to laugh uh, mixed in with the weeping and then all of the tribe uh, start to laugh along with him and it is a big show of redemption and uh, arrival. Okay, so... I just want to say about the music, it is so effective at conveying this sense of dragging yourself up and up and up, Sisyphusianly. Yeah, I mean, the visual is an extremely overt reference to Sisyphus. Yes, he keeps dragging a heavy thing up a hill and it keeps falling back. I mean, the scene is, is so starkly kind of uh, allegorical. Absolutely. Picture. That's the kind of thing where a strong musical presence made sense to me. It felt like this isn't truly realistic. It's a tableau. When you first used the word operatic, I thought of this scene immediately because it, you know, even though obviously they're not singing, it's an operatic feeling piece of storytelling. It's not realistic. It's outlandish. It's, you know, writ large. Right. So uh, it starts out with, I think it's contrabassoons and... It's this, like, there it is, creepy, crawly, again, small scalar steps. And then they're laid on top of these sort of booming pads underneath. It just constantly feels like it's oozing forward, inching past itself. And you can sort of hear the footsteps in the music, not literally, but it's this sense of creeping just little by little and orchestration expands along with it and it is an immensely effective use of these one scale step to the next they're just sort of building on each other in this very evocative way and i also like about this little figure that it's got kind of like three steps forward two steps back built into it right so first it's do 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 and then it's up a step and then it goes slides back down. So this follows him all the way up the mountain. And then he gets to the top and his burden is cut away. And then it plays again with similar repetitive scale or motifs. <laughs> These little step ups, these just small do 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 building up, but now now it lands on a major chord, the strings are in there. And it really you really feel like all of this trial that he went through to creep his way all the way up now it's getting echoed in this very meaningful and satisfying way. And then then the oboe starts and plays the theme that we already associate with Gabriel and his missionary work. feels like it just so organically evolves out of those scalar fragments and the little noodly turns that I was talking about before they never feel I think more compelling and effective in the whole movie than they do coming out of that whole sequence 
we've heard these scalar fragments played obsessively and obsessively, and they sounded so drudging and so overwrought with burden. And then they're transmuted before our eyes, before our ears, and it really convinced me that, okay, something interesting and emotional really is happening here. And that was the most successful moment in the score. And I think you're right, the most successful moment in the movie. I mean, I was moved by that sequence as a whole because I felt like it um, was the most psychologically thought through. This is set up in the, the moment when De Niro's character snaps and kills his brother. Some stranger is chuckling at something else. He says, you laughing at me. You left. This is the thing that sets him off, and then he enters the duel with his brother and, and ends up stabbing him in his rage. So then, in the next scene, the priestly Jeremy Irons visits him in the cell. Leave me alone. You know what I am. Yes. You're a mercenary. You're a slave trader. And you killed your brother. I know. And you loved him. Although you chose a strange way to show it. And De Niro's character snaps up and says, Are you laughing at me? Are you laughing at me? And Jeremy Irons says, I am laughing at you. Laughing at me? You're laughing at me? I see is laughable. I see a man running away, a man hiding from the world. I see a coward. This is a clever screenplay moment because we've learned to associate it with the violence and how he gives him the other answer. And there's this sort of grinding music under the whole scene. And at this moment... You know what? I think it's actually based on that four-note mission theme. That we heard. It is. Many things in the movie are based on those four notes. It's actually three pitches with one repeat. Do, 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 do. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's this, again, this sort of burbly, burbly underneath. And I thought it was super effective that he laid it as a bed that was just burbling on an upward trajectory slightly and then for the climactic moment when Robert De Niro jumps up and sort of holds Jeremy Irons throat up against the wall because he had established this substrate of burbly energy it was there for him to call upon to sort of rise up for this moment of violence this idea that violence is you know to be depicted with a kind of sharp notes in the orchestra is an old standard idea but because it was here juxtaposed against the audience wondering what's going to come of the priest speaking the grace of truth saying exactly the thing the other guy doesn't want to hear yes i'm laughing at you because i see you as a coward uh it suddenly took on all this meaning to me he actually isn't angered by being told that he is laughable because he believes this he's the one who says there is no penance hard enough for me and then during the penance sequence, when Liam Neeson character says, He's done this penance long enough. And, well, the other brothers think the same. Jeremy Irons says, But he doesn't think so, John. And I thought this was really 
psychologically insightful about the function of penance. It's not to please God, but to release some sense of guilt. And so the catharsis, after he's reached the top, uh, felt real to me. It's that he, to his own astonishment, finds that he has the capacity to feel his feelings, that he actually feels sad. He has these tears and laughter to let out that were repressed. Uh, So it was very convincing catharsis. And so that most moving moment in the score then leads directly into scenes of them building the mission and Robert De Niro making a new life in the mission. And we hear this version of the oboe theme on the native pan flute, which figures a lot in the score. This classical grace that has been the payoff of the whole penance sequence now gets musically added to it this strange, surprising native element. With drums and rhythmic staccato choral shout singing. Watching it, thought I feel lifted up by this. I don't know exactly what it means, but these two worlds meeting in this glorious sound of the music that he's put together is wonderful. This is wonderful. And then that's it. The movie and the music are done having thoughts. And then there is an hour and 20 minutes. That is right. Yeah, that's exactly the point. So that's the point where the um, cardinal is brought up to the mission at the top of the falls and he is greeted warmly by the natives actually you're you're giving the movie too much credit by saying that's what happens next actually what happens next is we get i don't know maybe 20 minutes 30 minutes of scenes without a lot of music basically suddenly all this politics gets dumped into the movie and morricone pulls back he's like i don't want to score this political stuff and the movie starts to be exposed yeah i definitely noticed a long swath in the middle there where the music stopped and yeah and i felt abandoned and uh that was definitely the dividing point between feeling like the music is doing something interesting and is taking me to a place i should be taken to feeling like no that degree of forethought is not present here you know good thing that they had any to write beautiful things but it doesn't deserve the credit for telling me something that I was trying to give it. So music that Morricone has written for that sort of middle sequence of the movie is this, you know, sourced music, which is the music that Jeremy Irons has been teaching, or that all the missionaries have been teaching the natives to sing and perform. And Morricone has written some, again, Baroque chorale-type music, an Ave Maria and a Te Deum and... uh, And he has a choir singing it in this quote-unquote naive style, how the natives would sing it, I guess. It sounded to me like the naive style, as you say, would sort of fade in and out. It would go back and forth between being a professional chorus and a a local chorus. Did you hear that effect? Yeah, I mean, you could sort of imagine the 
choir director saying, here is what we're going to do to the vowels to make us sound like Guarani from 1750. Right. Then all of the professional chorus singers did that one thing to their vowels uh, and nasalized. Anyway, then the rest of the movie is that the cardinal says, sorry, the mission has to disband for political reasons. And the natives say, well, this is our way of life and we're going to fight for it. And they have a battle and the battle is very unsatisfying. I got this impression that the movie thought it was sort of above the low art of staging convincing battle scenes because it was telling this grandiose human drama story, but then went ahead and focused an awful lot of time and attention on these battle sequences. And, you know, like just the continuity was bad from shot to shot in terms of who's getting shot by whom and when, and uh, what are they trying to achieve in their little skirmishes and their battles, and what's happening just what's happening? It looks like a production that made sure to shoot a bunch of different stuff and then went into the editing yeah. room and was like, well, these are the things we shot, so let's cut them together. It doesn't form a story. And unfortunately, the music sort of got the same treatment of, yeah, we got a bunch of stuff and we're not sure what it means or what it's doing there. So in this final battle, they're shooting these volleys of fire arrows, okay? And it's dramatic stuff. And... This is scored with choral singing music, and it's reaching for the move where there is, you know, dramatic action on the screen, but the music is playing against it. The music is playing a broader perspective and not sort of falling to the surface level of the action that we're seeing on screen. And this immediately lends a sort of higher perspective, a sense that this is being commented upon from some lofty vantage points when you hear this. Perhaps the most archetypical example of this for war movies is uh, the movie that came out the same year, 1986, Platoon's use of the Barbara Adagio for strings, this slow, stately, you know, wrenchingly poignant string music that is played as people are shooting and dying and running through the jungle of Vietnam, right? So it's this powerful juxtaposition of, you know, horrible man's uh, violence against man. Uh, Why didn't you say inhumanity? Thank you. This horrible, violent man's inhumanity to man juxtaposed with this sort of overarching viewpoint uh, that is given by this placid choral music, or relatively placid. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, it's reaching for this effect. And then, it just kind of stops. The music just goes away. They're still shooting arrows. The mission is still burning. But wait, John, that is diegetic music. He is leading them in the chorus. That's their pacifist response to being attacked. They are singing the Ave Maria on site. And then when the fire starts, they stop singing because they have to move. Well, that wasn't clear. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that that is what is happening in that scene. I think it's this movie's attitude that the platoon-like uh, lofty perspective that you're mentioning is this sort of passing effect that then part of the dissolution of, of everything that we've been invested in is that like, well, now they have to stop singing because it's really all falling apart. 
I mean, the way the whole final battle is scored is kind of like, well, there's this thing going on, but it failed. And there's this thing going on, but it failed. And he does that by taking the chunks of music he's written and overlapping them in a chaos, which at a very great distance, if you stand back and say, oh, I see what it's saying. It's saying that um, this beautiful Eden that they had created in this mission and all of this beautiful music kind of gets dissolved into a sludge and everything, you can't distinguish one thing from another and it all fades away and at the end you're just left with these thunks. That seems like the overall strategy of the end sequence. That's a sort of an intellectual thing, but it's not movie music anymore. It's, it's not scoring an experience. If, you're, if your whole point was just that they don't stick the land in, I think that still applies. It's it's like the movie, as though it's a principled point, kind of throws up its hands and is like, there is no particular emotion that goes with any of this. Who knows? It's just a mess. Yeah, that's right. It, it was such a mess. But that's not a cinematic point. That's not an emotional point. That's a kind of anti-cinematic point. Like, you couldn't make a movie out of this because it doesn't add up to anything. That was like what they wanted it to say at the end. Yeah, so I guess the chorus abruptly stopping its singing, yes, struck me as a very jarring moment of abdicating the filmmaking. Right, because you were committed to the musical effect, and when they jerked that out from under you, it didn't teach you the lesson that, oh, all good things must pass. It taught you the lesson, like, this movie isn't working. Yeah, that's exactly right. It didn't teach me the lesson that, you know, the, the beautiful voices of, of Christian Grace are being snuffed out. It just jarred me and made me think, well, what did you want me to be thinking about while this was happening? Uh, I don't think it has an, an actual answer to that question. It, it's not coming from a... You know, it, it suddenly was clear that it was not offering a higher vantage point, a lofty position from which to judge uh, man's inhumanity to man. It was uh, just a bunch of stuff that was in there. It was just one of the many layers of things that they didn't really think about how they were being presented. You know, these guys die and no acknowledgement is made of it in the music. No emphasis is placed on it. None of the emotion of this terrible, torturous death of having to see that your work is in vain and nothing has come of any of it uh, but death and destruction. It wasn't playing in emotion. It was... It was doing this thing that I think was an intellectualist approach. Yes. Which was this idea of collage. Yes, collage. You know, look look at the chaos that comes when, when things meet that can't meet in a harmonious way. And then he just did that with sound. I mean, here's what you hear at the very end when Jeremy Irons is leading out the congregation to essentially certain death. He's knowingly and purposely walking into bullets. Right, because there's nowhere else for them to go. And he's just sticking to his faith. And De Niro is dying on the ground. He's already been shot. Everything's just falling to pieces. And we're hearing this, which is the oboe theme, juxtaposed with the singing in a not meaningful way, juxtaposed with this high string note, which is getting creepily higher and higher. Almost works. Juxtaposed with all of this noise, and it just fades into oblivion. Mush.
you know, the final scenes of this sequence are the burning, just fire, and we hear this thunking, this bass note representing nothingness. And that on paper is a kind of recreation of what's happening on the screen, but it is not a scoring of what's happening on the screen. It's just an analog to it. And that is insufficient. That's right. Because in order for it to be a scoring, there would have had to have been storytelling decisions about <laughs> when you were supposed to understand what was happening. And there was no point when you could understand what was happening. So there are these sort of echoing trumpet calls. That are these martial trumpet calls to war, and they're sort of calling and responding with the native type instruments, and it's again part of this sort of collage texture. I think it's a little earlier in the war sequence. Uh, I want to point to a spot where he does the same thing in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where there are these martial trumpets doing, you know, very on the nose sort of war bugle calls that are kind of out of time and out of tonality, just layered collage-like on top of a different piece of music. It's when uh, they go to a, a civil war fort in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So it's just this kind of, these little peppered sounds of war are being juxtaposed against the story that the other melody is telling, which is one of the melodies of the score that is meaningful in the context of the score. And I think this cue is actually very effective in you know, using this collage technique to show you something and to dress the set a little of the music. But the thing about it is that it doesn't lose its way. It's still playing this predictable melody that we've heard before in the score underneath and I think it's just a much more effective use of this collage technique than in the mission and I think it's because Sergio Leone knew what uh, what story he was telling. When you make a movie the subject of which is the interaction of a bunch of disparate social political historical elements in this weird moment where a bunch of different forces met and created this historical conflict, your responsibility is to do something other than like list them or stack them. And the movie essentially lists them and the music essentially stacks them. And insofar as it is musically satisfying, the magic of that kind of works when he actually composes them together, as he does in the end credits, which seems to be the part he's the proudest of. He plays it in concert, and that's what uh, recently in an interview was talking about. The I think he called it a miracle that he makes these three elements of the choral music, the oboe theme, and the native music fit together. <laughs> Because it actually fits together, there's this 
possibly inarticulable but experienced sensation that there's a meaning to the interrelationship of these elements and that maybe is a cheap out for a movie that maybe should have had a point about it but it it kind of works for the audience hey these things go together in this strange way but when you make them not fit together that you haven't done your work. I think the only context in which a kind of noisy collage that doesn't cohere can be satisfying for an audience is when they know exactly what that noise signifies in a larger framework. But here he just, he burns his own framework. And then I guess there's a coda I mean, do you feel like the coda where you hear a boy's soprano singing the falls theme is meaningful? It just seemed like a gesture to me. Yeah, it was just a gesture to this easy treatment of, isn't that a shame? You know, here is something for us all to gnash our teeth about. But I don't think it earned any teeth gnashing in particular. So when this score works, it's because there are effective, powerful, beautiful compositions in it that have gone on to have lives of their own in other movies, trailers, other people imitating them. Obviously, yes, the, you know, what are those shows called? What's that show in Britain called where you you want to be a superstar? What, what is the talent TV show called? So you think you can talent. They've gone on, you know, classical crossover has embraced this music. And right. You're a you're Charlotte Church phenomenon. Right. Is that her name? Yeah, but I don't think she sang that particular song, but someone just like that sang that song. Nella Fantasia from her new album, Dream With Me. It's the very lovely Jackie Ivanko. Anyway, this music has gone on to have a life of its own outside the movie because it is strong music. And I think that it would have been a better movie score if it had just never let down the reins at all. If everyone involved had agreed that this movie was kind of handsome photography of an interesting subject and not more than that, and great images for them to play music to, I think they could have actually made something better out of it. I, if they had just actually gone ahead and played music to it all the way through. Yeah, if they had just been like, you know, da, 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 da. Every time I hear that, I think this is moving. Something is moving. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it, it reminds me of something I was thinking as I was watching. I kept thinking, golly, I kind of thought that this score was going to be more sweeping, soaring melodies over nifty things to look at. And I was kind of surprised at how murmurly and creepy crawly it was and how much dissonance it was made with. And the moments that would classically feature a score, the moments like 
the helicopter shots of the mountains and how the West was won that are made to showcase a score and you really hear a soaring melody. That's sort of what I had in mind as my picture of what this score was about. And it's really not. And I think people maybe misremember it that way. And I that impression bubbled up to me somehow. Yeah, well, I know how it is. It's because like 10 different movie trailers in the 90s were like, you know, in a world where no one will let this man be himself, he'll finally find his way when he goes yeah. abroad. His dreams were of peace and the woman he loved. I want a home and shelter. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. But his destiny would be written in a battle for honor. As long as these lands And then you'd hear da 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 that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! And it meant, right. in the trailer, it meant that, like, the human spirit is going to go... You would see a helicopter shot of the mountains when you would hear that music. And its original use wasn't nearly as good. Mel Gibson. Yes, that's right. It had this grandiosity that I thought Braveheart. was part of its job. And I was surprised, yes, that in the climax of this movie, in the denouement, when we were seeing all these things transpire, all these awful things... It abdicated its responsibility to lead us in that way, to give us this sense of grandiosity. Even though the movie itself absolutely did not earn a sense of meaning, I wonder if they had simply tracked that whole last battle sequence with some soaring statements of maybe a medley of all the you know lovely themes just played continually. I wonder if I would have a very different sense of the movie than the one I had walking away from it. So if you listen on the soundtrack album to the second track called Gabriel's Oboe, which is the music heard as part of the collage at the end while Jeremy Irons is walking to his death, it's just a statement of that pretty Baroque-style theme, and then at the end there are some ominous thunks underneath the classical conclusion of it. I wonder if that's what he actually wrote for that scene and then this chaos was added later. Because I think the simplicity of that would have been far more effective and yes, far... Yes, it definitely would have been more effective. And again, this is where I don't know, I'm just speculating, but it seems to me like some meddling might have gone on. Uh, so this is a score that its reputation is in great part based on its legacy it influenced sounds other people wanted to use. Sure. It was useful for temping other things. It was useful for trailers. I believe that the soundtrack album sold very well. It was widely recognized as uh, distinguished composition for film, if not distinguished uh, film score. I don't know how to how to differentiate it. Uh, this, it it's absolutely influential, and it, it has seeped into the collective consciousness, probably the, in the ways that you described, because of the soundtrack and everything. But I think my judgment of it has to be, I'll borrow the words that you just said, it is very, very distinguished musical composition for film, but I cannot call it a successful film score because it doesn't... Because it's not a successful film. Because it, crucially, it is not a successful film. And uh, the ways in which the film went wrong, it was 
inevitable that the use of music would also go wrong in those ways. Not the music itself necessarily per se, but the use of music. And I think that the score, when you call something a great score, you are praising not only the musical composition, but you are praising the use of the music in the telling and the making of a great film. And that is not what has happened here. I essentially agree with that. Nonetheless, uh, I had moments of experiencing this as great film scoring. I agree. I did too. That I may not be able to re-experience now that I, I see the bigger picture. But I think there are moments. I think there are moments of great there film are. scoring. Yes, in there this are. Film. And we've discussed them. And, and we, I, we absolutely have. I just want to... I thought this list, this AFI list, seems kind of like just a random list. And this I thought, well... Now we're in the ballpark. This is something special. You're right. And when it was doing the thing that it could do, it was special. I agree. But I think in the end, I have to give it an incomplete. I think it's... <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. I think it gets an incomplete for me. Like I said last time, I don't know if we want to make this a running thing, but for now, if you had to rank it, now you've got a list with On Golden Pond and How the West Was Won. Do you want to put this above, below? Where does it go? I mean, can I cop out and say it's an incomplete? I, I don't know if you can cop out because the movie was released to theaters. The soundtrack is done. It's 30 That's years true. old. Well, then I have to put it lower. I'm sorry. Because the list that I am making, as I say, I am sticking to my highfalutin guns here about what I think makes a score good. And it is different than just what makes music good. And this is very good music with some great scoring moments. But it can't be considered a great score. I respect the consistency of your principle. For me personally, the fact that it had great moments meant that I felt I had gotten... Uh, you got your money's worth. Well, I didn't put any money into it, but I, <laughs> I feel like I I got something memorable that I can check in with. Certainly that scene of catharsis is something that I can check in with a feeling that movie music made me have. And I thought, yeah, now we're... Now we're talking about something worth putting on a list. So for me, it goes above the other two. Okay. Well, my stand, as I say, is principled and highfalutin. I respect that. I respect it. And I, within that principle, agree with you. And, you know, if you changed my list so that its criteria, you know, included great moments of uh, what a film score can make you feel in conjunction with a movie, then absolutely it would jump to the top because, yes, that, that was truly great. I guess I'm enforcing a, a more holistic view of the entire work. Uh, very admirable. I want to grant any Morricone this, that for the past three or four days, as I have been mulling over the movie, thinking about the music, like this music is in my head. There is something uh, sticky about it, and I recognize that as something. I don't know if it needs to be celebrated, but it's got something. It's got something to it. I cannot disagree. You are, of course, correct. And I want to grant Ennio Morricone this. I love you. And I was greatly thrilled by getting to clumsily fawn at you uh, that one time. And, what did he say? What did he do? Uh, I, I said my clumsy fawning and his translator translated it to him in Italian. And he waved his hand at me very Pope-like and said, grazie, grazie, and walked on. So I have great respect for any Morricone, and I would advise him to not score any more movies for Roland Joffe. Done. Oh, uh, no, it's not true. He did He did several more for him. I would have advised him against it, although I don't know what they are. All right, I think that uh, that brings us to the end, does it not? 
Okay, well, thanks for talking about this with me, Andy. That score has been settled. No, I don't think... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. uh, Tune in next week when we'll have another score to settle. Still, this is the name of our show. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening.